0: What is the greatest baseball lineup of all time? Baseball, yeah. Was it the 1932 Yankees maybe? Maybe the 1961 Yankees? Maybe the 2000 Yankees? See see a theme here? But really, I would argue the greatest baseball lineup of all time, at first base, a guy named who? At second base, a guy named what? At third base, a guy named, anybody know? And who plays shortstop? I don't give a darn. Pitching. Who's pitching? Tomorrow. Who's catching? Today. Who's playing left field? Why? Who's playing center? Because. And who's playing right? Nobody. If you don't know what I'm talking about, this sounds ridiculous. But if you know what I'm talking about, this is probably the greatest comedy skit of all time. So Abbott and Costello do this this little routine about who's on first. And they go back and forth, and then uh, Abbott asks Costello who's on first, or excuse me, Costello asks Abbott, yeah, who's on first? And he says, who? The guy who plays first base. Who? Yeah, that's right. And this goes on for 10 minutes and it's just brilliant. If you, don't, if you haven't seen it, look it up on YouTube. And, but it always comes back to who's on first. Who's on first? Who's playing first base? When in reality, the guy, the name on the back of his jersey is who? And he's, he's got a glove. Oh, someone just got this. <laughs> And he's playing first base. And every other name is just as ridiculous. And this goes on and on. And it's been redone so many times. And so, why I say that is, you know, after reading this text again and again this this week, I started asking who's on trial. Because at first, you read through this, and right now, Jesus is going before Pilate. He's being pushed by the Jews. And on the surface, Jesus is being thrust before the Roman authorities by the Jews, he's being tried and examined by Pilate. But as you start to dig deeper, I start to question, who's really on trial here? Because by the details John includes, and you think about the implications of them, begin to ask, is Jesus really putting them on trial? So I want us to think through this. So what we're going to do, because this is more of a a historical passage, and uh, there's a lot of historical information, I want to read through it. We're going to walk through it. I'm going to bring out some details, and then we're going to walk through some of the implications after that. So there's sermon outlines. If you want to read those, or excuse me, write in those, I encourage you to. And um, if you have any questions about the sermon or anything afterward, please let me know. But if you have your Bibles, if you don't, there's one in the pew in front of you, open to John chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Lord, there is nothing in our history, nothing in our experience, nothing in our lives as heavy as this. The Son of God, full of glory and power, takes on flesh to save those who would kill Him and send Him to the cross. To die that they may not die. To be risen again that they might rise again to new life. But in this moment, Standing before pagan authorities, delivered by the so called leaders of Israel for our sin. Lord, my prayer this morning is that the weight of this is lost on no one. Pray that everyone in this room will consider this man who is on trial. Is he the son of God? Is he the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world? Or is he a liar? And did he deserve to die? The gospel in our very lives hinges on this. Lord, I pray that your spirit would go before me. I pray that you would open hearts and open minds and you would prepare the soil for these words. I pray as Jerron did that I would decrease so that you might increase. And I pray most of all that you are glorified through our time together this morning, that you are exalted as our King, as our Lord, as our Savior, as our High Priest, as our sacrifice. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who we owe everything. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. If you have not been here for the past few weeks or if you forgot, let me brush you up. Jesus is delivered over to Rome and he stands in front of Pilate the first time. And Pilate asks him if he's a king because the Jews had said he claims to be a king. Kill him. Jesus goes on to tell him, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate walks out and he says, I don't find any guilt in this man. There's no reason to put him to death. And even so, I'm going to give you a loophole. I'm going to give you a way out. Every year around this time, during the Passover, I give you one get-out-of-jail-free card, literally. I will pull out anyone you want from jail, giving them Jesus on a silver platter. This is your get-out-of-jail-free card. But the people choose Barabbas, a robber, a murderer, just the all-around bad guy. And they cry for him. And they cry to crucify Christ. And so Pilate now, being faced with the pressure of the mob and trying to do his job on behalf of Rome, hoping to appease them, he takes Jesus out and flogs him in their their presence. Now if you grew up in church, you've heard some of these analogies. If you haven't, you need to know this. Flogging. Crucifixion is the worst torture ever. The worst thing that human beings have ever come up with. And flogging is the worst appetizer before the worst bloody meal. Now, there are different accounts of how this would take place. Either you'd be bent over a stone or even stretched by four cords as they took ropes of, of leather with stone, metal, and bone tied to the end. And they would, they would whip you until your, your muscles and even your organs were visible on your back. And not just would you be whipped until you were bloody, but you would would have things thrown at you, and others would come with, with poles and sticks and beat you while you were being flogged. And this is just a precursor to being hung on two cross beams and stuck through your hands and feet. This is not a pretty sight. You've got to hate someone so much for you to see that and it not be enough. This is what Pilate did to Jesus before them as witnesses. And if that wasn't enough, verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They wanted to make a serious statement. You claim to be king, we're going to mock your kingship. They made a spectacle of him. Purple was the most, uh, the, the most expensive color you could have because it, it is a rare dye that, that they, would, they would take and, and dye it. So they, they put, and they want to make a real statement, because they put a purple robe on a bloody and beaten man, and they put a wrap, a crown of thorns to give him a, a fake crown, and also probably gave him a fake scepter. So they beat him, and then they prop him up like this. I love I have to quote A.W. Pink so much because I love the things that he brings out. But he says it's very appropriate that in the curse, all the way back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and God pronounced his judgment on them, the very ground, the thorns and the thistles, are cursed because of your sin. And it is appropriate that the thorns are put on his head. The very curse of the earth is placed on his head as well, in addition to the sin of man. He's already beaten and bloody. What do they do in verse 3? They came up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews! Mocking him. This is your king? Really? We're going to show you who this king is. And they struck him with their hands. Now the English, as it so often does, does not give us the full sense of this. The tense in the Greek is continuous. If you have ever seen Full Metal Jacket? And if you haven't, don't. But if you have, this is the the style of person after person coming up and slapping him. All of these soldiers in a line slapping him. They continuously slapped him with their hands. They're mocking him. Hail the king of the Jews, slap. Hail the king of the Jews, slap. After they beat him. You may ask, why is it that serious? Why add insult to injury? Why add insult to injury, quite literally? And I will argue this is the condition of man. This is who we are. And if you don't think so, turn to Romans chapter 3. Because many people are tempted to read this. If you don't know where Romans is, we're in John, two books to the right, chapter 3. Many people are tempted to read this and say, oh, that's just those, those wicked Roman soldiers. Regular nice people wouldn't do that. The Bible gives us a very different picture of who we are in our core, and I'll give you the reason why in just a moment. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jew and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. There's got to be. No, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. We read this in Psalm 14 earlier. No one does good, not even one. Do these next few verses sound familiar to you? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Pilate and the Jews and the soldiers are just one example of this. And you may still be debating with me here. People aren't really that bad. People are not really that that bad. This is just that. Really. I challenge you this week threaten someone's comfort, threaten someone's pet sin. Say, I am a follower of Christ. You need to repent of your sin because you are going to die and go to hell in your sin. See how much they love you then. We see this in our world today. If you call out someone's desire to be their own God and tell them you must die to yourself so that you can live to Christ, this is happening all around the world. Because this is what happens with carnal people. And they are called out spiritually. The only way they can respond is physically. This is nothing new. And at the core, when they are faced with the truth of who Jesus Christ is, their only response is kill him because he threatens my kingdom. But Pilate here, he sees The travesty of it all. And so Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate here is giving them another out. I find no guilt in him. So he had brought Jesus in. Jesus was probably whipped in the the courtyard of Herod's palace, like we talked about last week. And so Jesus came out. They brought him out again, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. This is repeated for emphasis to remind you. This is the state that they kept Jesus in during this entire thing. And Pilate says, behold the man. He's getting their attention. Look at this guy. Isn't isn't his punishment enough for him? Behold him. This is the guy you're scared of? Really? Hasn't he suffered enough? There's nothing threatening or impressive about him. He never threatened them physically. He was never physically intimidating. But he spiritually scared them to their core. Look what happens next in verse 6. When the chief priests, these are the heads of the, the tribe of Levi. They're supposed to be God's ministers before him and the intercessors between him and his people. The chief priests and the officers cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, look at this guy. There's nothing threatening about him. And again, the English does not do this justice. In the Greek, this is much more direct in hearts. Crucify! Crucify! That is their response to Jesus being beaten to within an inch of his life and mocked. Crucify! Crucify! And this is a fascinating exchange here. And it's important to remember that just a few chapters ago, in chapter 12, earlier this week, The same people who are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, with one voice the people of Israel saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, are now joining in this chorus of crucify, crucify. And this exchange gets interesting because Pilate says to them, take him yourself and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him, a third time. The number three keeps coming up. Jesus says three times, I am, I am, I am, when he's standing in the garden of Gethsemane. Peter, three times, I do not know him, I do not know him, I do not know him. Pilate, three times, I find no guilt in him, I find no guilt in him, I find no guilt in him. This emphasis is not here by accident. And the Jews respond, verse 7. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now, on its grounds, that, that claim is sound. Because if someone claims to be God and is not, they should die. They were not confused by Jesus' claims. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly who he was claiming to be. But it's interesting how easy the law can be misunderstood. How easy it can be twisted and distorted because both can't be right. Jesus cannot come to fulfill the law and they say he is guilty of the law at the same time. Someone must be wrong. So this is an important lesson for us that we must be careful to those who twist the law of God for their own purposes. We must discern everything against Scripture because there are many people who are convinced of what they believe just like these chief priests were. And they are dead wrong. We must hold fast to the truth of God's word and know who Christ is. Because they certainly didn't. And so not only was this difficult for them, this is difficult for Pilate too. Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He's more afraid. That means he was afraid from something else. Uh, So here's where I'm going to bring in a little bit from one of the other Gospels. Look at Matthew 27, 19. In this verse, at this same time, Pilate's wife comes to him. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, the same seat we'll get to in a minute, his wife sent word to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate's wife, like Pilate, was very superstitious. She is suffered in a dream. She's, she's tormented because there's a righteous man who's going to be tried unrighteously. And it's important to remember, too, that the Romans were, were polytheists. So the Romans had, had plenty of gods like the Greeks. Many of them were superstitious. And although they had no supreme transcendent god like the God of Israel, they had many imminent gods. Meaning, their gods were not in control of all things, but their gods could come and go. And their gods could take on human form, and their their gods could procreate with human beings. So there's a chance this might be true. So now Pilate is even more afraid, and he's probably thinking to himself, could he be a son of the gods? So now his question makes more sense in verse 9. He entered his headquarters again, so he brings Jesus back inside for further interview. Where are you from? He didn't say, who are you? He didn't say, where are you from? He knew he was Jesus of Nazareth. That was well known. He's asking, where are you from? Are you from God? Are you from some other place than this? Is what they're saying correct? I don't want to kill a son of God. But Jesus gives him no answer. So then Pilate says to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? is exactly what bullies do. They remind you of their power and why you should submit to them. Jesus owes him nothing, but still responds in verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus says, I know you have authority, but I know where it comes from. I know who has authority over you. And it's, it's authority that has been loaned to you. You can do nothing apart from the sovereign God, so you don't have to remind me about authority. But he goes on. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is a singular, I don't know if he's talking about a person here or he's talking about a people. I'm not so concerned about, you shouldn't be concerned about your authority, you should be concerned about your sin, because his sin is great. He's a pagan pawn in all this, but he's not innocent. But those who turn me over to you are more guilty, those who have claiming that they have eyes to see. In chapter 9, he tells the Jews in verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. These are men claiming to be the seers of Israel. They see they are the upholders of the law. The greater sin lies on them because they have distorted God's law for their own purposes. From then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. There was a code word in in Rome. I'm a friend of Caesar's. I'm a friend of Caesar's. It's like a mafia kind of thing. I'm a friend of Caesar's. And so they knew how to push his buttons. But at the same time, Pilate sought to release him. So was Pilate convicted? Uh, Did he discover a a conscience? Was he sympathetic? Was he still haunted by his wife's words? Uh, We don't know his heart. But we know that he was conflicted. And now he's presented with these, these accusations, and Pilate's a pragmatist. They hit him where it hurts. They hit him in the wallet. All right, this is my job now. I get paid by Rome. And now if, if there's accusations that I might not be a, a friend of Rome, I really got to rethink this thing. The Jews knew what to appeal to. But still in the back of his mind is this man from God. And so this question we're going to raise a little bit later is what is our desire? What was Pilate's desire? Was it to please man or to please God? There's a lot of pleasing man going on here and not much pleasing God. John continues with the details. So then Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat him on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in an Aramaic, in Aramaic Gabbatha. Not much we want to get into there really, but just thinking about. The one who will judge the living and the dead is about to be seated on this judgment seat. It was a concrete slab. So we'd have brought him out kind of a table like this and just um, probably Pilate sitting on it. And Pilate is the one who's going to be judging the judge of all the earth. Just a little bit of irony there. So John goes on, so brings Jesus out. He sits in this judgment seat. He's about to make a decision. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Uh, so the day of preparation was always the day before the Sabbath. They would prepare for the Sabbath because they couldn't eat, they couldn't cook, they, they, they couldn't go out. So it was the day of preparation on the week of the Passover. So that would be Friday. Sabbath began Friday at sundown. So this is Friday. This is why we have Good Friday. This all happened in this day. John's kind of giving us details, and he says it was about the sixth hour. What is the sixth hour? There's a lot of debate on this. Uh, if he was going by Roman time, like our time, Hour one is is midnight, so the sixth hour would be six in the morning, still really early. Um, If he was going by Jewish time, the first hour was the first hour of daylight, would be 6 a.m., so Jewish time it would be noon. Uh, We don't really know, no one wore watches back then, so they just kind of estimated based on on the sun. That doesn't really matter, um, so I don't know why I brought it up. But just in case you were wondering, (laughs) it was about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. He's pressing the Jews here. All right, I'm about to pronounce a judgment. Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure this man is your threat? And he's goading them a little bit, too. Behold your king. This is the guy that you're scared of. They cried out. Every time you see them speaking, it's not them saying, All right, Pilate, we're done with him, put him to death. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Get him out of our sight! Crucify him! This is a maddening scene. This bloody man on display as a propped up king, and this angry mob yelling, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And then Pilate responds, Shall I crucify your king? Would you crucify your own king? Pilate, whether he knows it or not, is being prophetic here. Because he does not realize what he's saying. He does not realize that Israel is crucifying their king. How often is Israel guilty of forsaking their true king? A king was always their temptation. And the chief priests bring it up a notch. We have no king but Caesar. This is wrong on so many levels. And I want to give you a few examples as to why. There's a, there's a couple things I, I want to bring up here. Because a king had always been a stumbling block for them. So quickly, look at Deuteronomy 17. These are going to be on the screen because I want to go through them quickly. So this is God giving direction to Israel. We'll get here in our Wednesday night Bible study when we get to chapter 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and possessing it and dwelling in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. God knows it's going to be a desire of Israel's heart. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Strike one, they want to be like the nations. Strike two, they're putting a pagan king above themselves. Look at uh, Judges chapter 8. So after Gideon uh, and his great battle or great victory and uh, Midian. Gideon had nothing to do with the victory. Uh, They wanted to crown him and his son's king. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. They didn't listen to that either. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. There's that phrase again, like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Samuel will go on to tell them, these kings are going to oppress you. They're going to enslave your, your children. They're going to take your fields. They're going to take your money. And they said, give us a king anyway. But here's the real indictment. 1 Samuel 12, 12. And when you saw that Nasa and the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, this Israel speaking to the Lord now, and him recounting it to them, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. We have no king but Caesar. This is not only a denial of Christ, this is a d- denial of the God of heaven, who sent Christ. Their true allegiance is to the kings of this world and the pagans, because they desire to please man. The other thing that's interesting to note here is that the chief priests were Sadducees. The Sadducees always debated with the Pharisees. They did not believe in the resurrection, but they also did not believe in a Messiah. They had no messianic hope. These were um, political opportunists. They were always looking for a way to further themselves in the culture. They were not very, very spiritual. They, they, They loved the law. They had no hope of a Messiah. They had no hope of a resurrection. So of course, when the Messiah comes before them, who promises to be raised on the third day for those who would trust and believe in him. They're going to reject him. And then they spoke for the people. They became the representatives of the people, and the people join in their cheers. And then finally, Pilate delivers them over to them to be crucified. So what I want to do here, as we've done the last few weeks, I think it's helpful to walk through the other Gospels. Because many times when you're reading through the Gospels, it seems like there are different uh, examples and different details in each one. Because there are. You've got four different authors with four different perspectives. So look at what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 27. So Matthew 27 is the one, or Matthew gives us that detail about Pilate's wife coming to him with the vision. So Matthew fills in a little bit more here. Matthew chapter 27 starting in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. This is important. Pilate washes his hands symbolically. This is not on me. This is on you. I am innocent of this innocent man's blood. And how does Israel respond? And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released them for Barabbas, and having scourged, Jesus delivered them to be crucified. So not, they were not unaware of what they were doing. Pilate says he is innocent. His blood be on us and our children. They were not, just, they were not condemning Christ. They were condemning themselves. Mark tells us that Pilate releases Barabbas so that he would uh, satisfy the crowd. That's Mark 15, 15. We won't go there, but turn to Luke So Pilate is a pragmatist in all this. He wants to release uh, Jesus so that he will satisfy the crowd. Luke gives us some other helpful details. Luke 23, starting in verse 13. So this is kind of the the summary of the last few events. Gives us some background and also gives us some additional information. Pilate then called together. So Luke uh, 23, verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. This is all the Israelite council here. And said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any charges against him. Neither did Herod. John doesn't address this. But Jesus goes before Pilate, then to Herod on the other side of the palace, and then back to Pilate. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate's giving his his judgment." I'm going to punish and release him. This is enough for, any, and he's punishing an innocent man, which is illegal in itself. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Parentheses here, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Luke gives us the, what's going on in Pilate's heart through all this. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify, crucify. They're wanting to shout over Pilate's words. And a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him nothing, uh, no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him a second time. Look at verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is all done according to human will and human desire, who in their blood lust would not listen to reason. So that's why reading all four Gospels helps us bring together the fullness of these accounts. So I have a few observations and some application for us. Now, if this was not true, if this was not horrific in its tragedy, this could have been written by Abbott and Costello. This is so ridiculous how this innocent man is being being railroaded here and being brought in and out, how everything is upside down, the innocent is being punished, and, and the guilty are crying for death. But it's not. But Then there's another temptation here to think, this makes no sense. How could God be in this? How could God allow this if we think of it from a pure, purely human perspective? But we must remember that this at the same time is in the perfect sovereign plan of God. Because in this, exemplified like nowhere else, man's guilt and God's grace. Look in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. We'll look at two passages in Acts. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're going to go like two pages to the right. The next book over, second chapter. We've looked at this verse a few times, but it's, we, we need to ingrain this into our mind. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Love to hear pages turning. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up, listen closely, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Full stop. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. At the same time, man is fully responsible. But God is sovereign and in control. He wasn't just crucified. He was raised up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Man had their designs for Jesus but death could not hold him because his death was not the end of the story he was not just going to die for sin he was going to be raised again on the cross and this became the rallying cry for the early church this became their prayer look at chapter four in acts verse 27 So, be the next page over in your bible they're praying for boldness and on what grounds did they pray for boldness? Verse 27. For truly in this city, they're still in Jerusalem a couple months after Jesus' resurrection. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. If your God is not in control of what happened to Christ or what happens in the world, your God is too small and he cannot save. These acts of God, it's important here these details. Both Jew and Gentile alike are in collusion with this. God's plan was that Jesus would come to be the savior of all, Jew and Gentile, and how appropriate that Jew and Gentile send him to the cross. It only emphasizes the point that the guilt of all is put on him, so that all who trust in him might be saved. And the the, the travesty of this whole thing exemplifies the need for the cross. Why was the cross necessary? Why was this necessary? Because people are that wicked. People have murder in their hearts. And if you don't think you're capable of murder, you're lying to yourself. You are one guy cutting you off in in, in traffic on a bad day with not much sleep and no coffee from killing someone. Am I wrong? I'm not the only one who's been there. But this is all according to the, the sovereign plan of God so that the son might be lifted up, so that he might be raised in victory and that he might be exalted in majesty. The Son of Man must be lifted up and put on the cross so that he can be raised, with, raised in victory over death and be seated in exaltation by the right hand of God. All this is so that Jesus could fulfill what the Father sent him to do. And if this had to happen, he must go to the cross, he must die for sin, the, the perfect sacrifice must be paid, then who really is on trial? They're condemning themselves in this whole spectacle. I love what William Barclay says about this. He says, when a man faces Jesus, it is not Jesus who is on trial, it is the man. There's a Chuck Norris joke in there somewhere. You don't put Chuck Norris on trial, he puts you on trial. But I would argue that both the Jews and Pilate are on trial here, not Christ. Both of them are out of control and they're reactionary. Jesus is perfectly calm and in control, even after being beaten to an inch of his life. And both the Jews and Pilate are desiring to please man. There is no fear of God in them. But Jesus does everything out of obedience and fear of the Father. Could not be more different. John also here continues this king theme that we talked about so much last week. John emphasizes his kingship. This is further indictment against the Jews. Because on the surface, Jesus is on trial. But in a kingdom sense, the Jews are on trial. And they're condemning themselves for rejecting their king, their brother, and exchanging it for a pagan king. Because the Jews, in fact, are right. Jesus repeatedly, implicitly, and explicitly says, I am the Son of God. I am the rightful king of Israel. On the surface, he is guilty of, in, in their eyes, of breaking the unspoken law. Don't you dare threaten my right to be my own God. He explicitly and implicitly made himself to be the son of God. And if he's a liar, he should be put to death. So this is a question every one of us must answer. Everyone on the planet must answer. Do you side with Christ or do you side with the Jews? Because either he is the son of God, the only hope for salvation, the king of Israel, the rightful king of kings and lord of lords, or he is a liar and he is to be put to death. Do you side with the Jews or do you believe Jesus? Because if you don't believe Jesus, you side with the Jews. There is no neutrality toward Christ. They are both guilty. Whether you demand his crucifixion and shout for it at the top of your lungs or you only reluctantly participate like Pilate did, you are still guilty. There is a greater and a lesser sin, but there is no neutrality before Christ. You either die with him on the cross or you are guilty of condemning him yourself because it is our sin who sent him there. If it was not for our sin, he would not need to go to the cross. We are all guilty. We are all complicit in the Son of God going to the cross. And Pilate was right. There was no guilt in him. The only guiltless one would die for the guilty. It is our sin that held him there. But it is his righteousness that lives in us. So we talked about the Jews with Pilate. There's some wisdom here. I find no guilt in him. And the irony of the one who is full of guilt himself recognizes the guiltless one. And he's a conflicted man, wants to release Jesus, but ultimately cares more about pleasing man. But then there's Jesus. Last passage I want to look at before we close. Isaiah 53 brings all this together. Look at all the the details here. 750 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesied these words about the one who would be to come. Surely, look at what is repeated here. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We are all guilty, but He bore our sin, our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions; He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His wounds we are healed. Through Christ there is peace, and only through Christ, and only through His wounds is there healing. Because it is our transgression, our transgression, our iniquity, our sin that sent Him to the cross. Remind us of Romans three, Psalm fourteen. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone. You think you're above this, you are not. Every one of you is guilty in your own sin. Every one of you would have sent him to the cross if you had the choice. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The beatings on his back was not the heavy part. It was the weight of of the sins, the millions of sins of millions of people who he would take to the cross with him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Pilate said, where are you from? He gave him no answer. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that was before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was caught off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Why was he beaten? Why was he flogged? Why was his back ripped open? For the transgressions of my people. He was beaten within an inch of his life for your sin. He was ridiculed before the people for your sin. He was brought to the cross for your sin. And that's heartbreaking. If it wasn't the best news the world has ever heard, your sin is laid on Christ. And if you are in Christ, rejoice. Hallelujah. If you are not in Christ, shudder. Because either your iniquities are on him, or they are on yourself. The one who would be mocked and fate coronated by the lowest of the low within a matter of days would be crowned king in the heavens of glory. Behold your king. And just one last thing. Our culture is always putting Jesus on trial. When he is the right to judge them, this is just a great reminder. When the world, it seems like the world has, has the upper hand. It seems like the world is winning in this. But we are reminded that this is according to the plan of God. Our God is never not in control. The Jews seem to be the aggressors, but he puts them on the defensive. Pilate seems to be in control of his fate, but Jesus reminds him that your authority comes from above. They both have something to prove, but he doesn't. His kingdom is forever, and it is unshakable. I want to close with these words from A.W. Pink because I cannot say it any better. I'll be up on your screen. Here then is the gospel of our salvation. The Savior was scourged that we might go free. He was crowned with thorns that we might be crowned with blessing and glory. He was clothed with a robe of contempt that we might receive the robe of righteousness. He was rejected as king that we might be made kings and priests to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that his stripes became my healing. Thank you that his wounds became peace for all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that as we look on this man of sorrows that we will cry out, Hallelujah, the King of Israel, my Savior, He is alive and I live in him. And it is his name we pray. Amen.